Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. University. I'm your host, Tim Williams. I'm joined once again by Chris Lynch from Boston. And we are going to talk this week about the changing rankings. We're going to spend a little bit of time on the ECAC because I'm not really sure we've touched that much on the ECAC this year and how great teams like Clarkson and Cornell are. And we'll get through a little bit of the news in the college hockey world as well as the strange happenings in hockey east but starting at the top notre dame is your new number one and this is as this is about the time of year where the polls start to matter a little less and the pairwise in about a week or two become everything but we still have the polls while we still have the polls and notre dame is number one with a bullet they get 40 first place votes. By the way, I'm going by the USCHO poll. As opposed to St. Cloud State, who was last week's number one, they get six. And then Clarkson and Cornell both got first place votes. But Notre Dame, the overwhelming number one. Chris, did the polls get it right? Absolutely. I think Notre Dame right now has the best goaltender going. They've got the best offense going. They really do have the best team. I mean, they're 18 18- three and one so far within their conference they're still unbeaten and that is a deep big 10 conference hate on the need for the existence of the conference all you want but it is a deep and outstanding hockey conference so they absolutely got it right kale morris right now would um, be my vote for the richter award for best goaltender and uh, Gross and Malmquist and all them on the uh, on the forward lines have been nothing short of spectacular. So, Fighting Irish, well deserved. I hope they can make it back to the Frozen Four for what would be their second year in a row uh, in the Final Four. The only word of warning I would give is that they seem to be peaking right now because they haven't lost since October 26th, and in fact, they haven't tied anyone in that time. That's how dominant Notre Dame's been. They've played and won every game starting with October 27th against Omaha. And only four of those games, no, I'm sorry, six of those games have come to come against teams that were not ranked at the time. Two games at RPI where they, they won both games. Two games at Michigan State. And that gives me a chance to say poor Sparty again. Yeah. And... Then this last weekend, in what could have been the marquee matchup of the weekend, or at least the a rivalry brought to hockey that is out there in every sport, 
you know, home and home, Notre Dame swept Michigan two to one in both games over the weekend. So they're deserving of the number one spot and they have been on fire since October. Oh yeah. Jeff Jackson is apparently in, I think one of his best coaching jobs. And this is a guy who has a number of frozen four trips and two national championships under his belt when he was the head coach of Lake Superior State from uh, from back in the day. So he's in the middle of his best job. He's in the middle of an excellent season. And I wouldn't put it past them to uh, award Jackson with the uh, uh, with the Penrose Award for best coach. So good on him. But you're right to be a little concerned about uh, if they're peaking a little bit too early. I, I wouldn't hold that same concern, but I understand where it's coming from. They replaced St. Cloud State as the number one team. Not really so much for anything St. Cloud State did. They split with Minnesota over the weekend. They won at home 5-2 to two on Saturday. They lost 2 to nothing on Sunday. So with the split, they dropped down. They have the same they have this they have a a similar record to Notre Dame in that they have the same amount of losses with three, but they also have played fewer games. Notre Dame eighteen three and one right now. As for and the pairwise, the pairwise has St. Cloud State over Notre Dame, but it, the pairwise becomes more and more relevant as the season goes on because it needs the bigger picture to really work. Yeah, and it should be noted that the um, that St. Cloud game, that the one they lost two nothing, was at Minnesota. We've noted this before, but Mariucci Arena in Minneapolis is one of college hockey's most sacred of grounds. So they battled and they held, uh, they held, they held them tight. They got thirty four shots on goal, but Matt Robson had a shutout. So St. Cloud, a worthy team, I'll. Be expecting to see them in the Frozen Four this year. Would it would have, amazingly enough only be their second trip to the Frozen Four. Their first one came in 2013, but I would expect them to make it back. And no shame in losing to Minnesota. It must be noted. And they also have a history. Minnesota and St. Cloud State, of course, are an in-state rivalry, so that always adds to those games, and it makes me think or it makes me dismiss the loss a lot more because in rivalry games, anything can happen and you know, you're going to get the best side of the other team. Agreed. Also Herb Brooks had a hand with both of these programs. He was the, Herb Brooks was the first coach when St. Cloud transitioned to a D one program. And of course Brooks made his name uh, with the golden Gophers. That is correct. And of course Herb Brooks is, well, he's the name of college hockey. There are a lot of great names in college hockey, but Herb Brooks is the one that will endure and the one that will last, largely because of the miracle on ice, but of course a legendary, legendary college hockey coach. I, I'm i a being person and impartial to Jack Parker, so I'm a little bit begrudgingly saying, yeah, i, I got to agree with you on that one, dude. Uh, if you've if you've read uh, there's a book that came out recently, Jack Parker's Wise Guys, which explains Parker uh, had some bad blood and bad history with Minnesota and with Herb Brooks specifically. So check it out; it's in the early chapters. Uh, worthwhile book. So uh, just just a semi-random thing for uh, for all you history people out there. Well, if you like college hockey, 
there are few people that have as many interesting stories around them as Jack Parker. So a book about Jack Parker is going to give you a lot of that. And if there are anecdotes involving both Jack Parker and Herb Brooks, that just makes it all the better. Um, that's coming from a person who I remember when Jack Parker was the coach of BU and I was rooting against BU. So I, I have my own set of thoughts on Jack Parker, but he is a fascinating character and, you know, a lively one as well. Um, we'll get to him later on in, in the coming weeks when we get closer to the Beanpot. There are a couple of great Jack Parker Beanpot stories I know firsthand. But um, it's a little early for that now. And, and I'm always kind of conscious that we can make this all about Boston teams if we wanted to. And I, I've got to get away from that because right now the top teams are from elsewhere. And that's going to shift me into some talk about the ECAC. Because as I mentioned, you know, when we were getting ready for this, we, we always kind of organize our topics a little bit. And when we were talking about it, we both kind of realized we haven't spent much time on the ECAC, even though they have two teams in the top five right now. Yeah, Clarkson and Cornell, it's, they are the two best teams in the East. Uh, Cornell, I've only gotten to see them once. I saw them play against BU and Red Hot Hockey uh, down in Madison Square Garden. And that is a young, young, young team. I think they're starting nine or so freshmen, including their goaltender. So the fact that they have so much youth and the fact that they are 13-2 and two overall, 7-1, and one, in the ECAC, and by the way, that one loss was was against Clarkson earlier this season. It's a crazy fact that uh, that they're able to get all that accomplishment out of out of a team that's so young, and the fact that they've all bought into being a part of Cornell, one of the traditional powers, well, one of the old time powers in uh, in college hockey. You know, it seems like at least one Ivy League team a year out of the ECAC is a national contender, and it's going to be Cornell this year. At 13-2-0, they have the fewest losses of anyone in the nation to this point in the season. Now, that's on the Ivy League schedule that starts a little late, but they're 15 games in. That's a good chunk of the season. Yeah, it uh, makes, makes a bit of sense that I mean, in terms of winning percentage, they've got the best one going right now, and I would like to see the Ivies change. I know they never will because uh, we all would like to see these guys play more hockey because it's fun, exciting to see them play. But the Ivy League rules, uh, you can't start more than three or four weeks before Thanksgiving, and that's for most winter sports. So basketball is like that as well, from my understanding. I don't know why they why they enforce it still, but that is the Ivy League rule. Well, in a way, it makes the ECAC that much more interesting. We talked on the realignment special about how kind of ideal it is as a conference already. And I think part of the personality is that you have some schools like Clarkson in there, the upstate New York schools as well, that aren't in the Ivy League, and they've had their great ECAC traditions, and Quinnipiac is one of those schools as well out in Connecticut. But then you have these Ivy League schools that have a little bit of different circumstances, but they're not in the Ivy League. They are in one of those college hockey unique conferences. So it's very interesting to me, that dynamic where Clarkson has played 
see, five more games than Cornell, and they're in the same conference, but that's just how it works, and it's how it works every year. I, I think that's part of what makes that conference so much fun. I agree with that, but in part, there just aren't enough Ivy League teams playing D1 hockey. I mean, uh, there's two schools in Penn, for some odd reason. I don't know why Penn folded their hockey team back uh, back in the day, but they did so. And Columbia, I don't think, has ever really had one. So that's two of the eight Ivy League schools that just plain don't have college hockey. And you can't. The Big Ten did this for a little bit, but realistically, you can't have just six teams in one conference. That's just not enough. So it makes sense for the Ivies to be folded in with uh, with the ECAC. There's tradition. There's real rivals. I mean, Cornell has old-timey, big-time rivalries with the other upstate New York teams, and it makes sense to to merge them in with uh, with everybody else there. So. If it Absolutely. works perfectly, I think it's perfect to do it that way. I I like it a lot because, as you said, it creates those unique rivalries. That you know, you're right about Penn. Although I will say, I don't think the Palestra would. I don't think it deserves to share its arena. I I I know we all love hockey, but the Palestra is a palace for basketball, so they would have to build a separate hockey arena. I would imagine to get hockey at Penn. And Columbia, they could just stand to be relevant in a sport would be nice for them, I'm sure. There are plenty of sports fans that go to Columbia. And um, in fact, I I met someone who went to who did some work at Columbia just yesterday that I'm sure would be happy to see them have a hockey program. So, you know, you're right about that, but I do like that they're part of a different conference. They're not just in the Ivy League that Yes, Cornell and Harvard can have a rivalry, and Harvard and Princeton, and all, and Harvard and Yale can play in hockey every year. But at the same time, it's nice to see that Yale also gets to play that school down the merit in Quinnipiac, and those are some intense games. And in fact, I would imagine most Yale hockey fans look more forward to those games than the ones against Harvard. And the same can maybe not necessarily be said of Cornell. They have they and Harvard are traditional hockey rivals, but they have their upstate New York schools to play against and they don't necessarily get to spend a lot of time athletically playing against those schools. So it's great to see it in hockey. I agree with that. Uh it is I think structurally it is the best conference. Not in terms of competitive balance or in terms of the level of talent that clearly is the NCAC but for geography and for history I think the ECAC is the current standard bearer for uh, uh, for all that stuff and look at us talking about all the history of it it might be worthwhile to talk about the actual hockey going on here because Clarkson in terms of their talent level with uh, with Sheldon Rempal who for a while was leading the nation in goal scoring still has 25 points with 16 goals. He's having a great season so far, and Devin Brusso is backing him up as well with 18 assists for a high in the conference. There's a lot of talent on that Clarkson team, and that's to say nothing of the other contender for the Richter Award, Jake Kiley, who is a sophomore with a save percentage of 948 and a goals allowed of 135. That's insane. And six shutouts this season. Just 
And all all of their good players, it seems, or most of their good players are sophomores. They're going to be returning most of this team next year. You've got you're going to have to get used to the Clarkson team because they are going to be there for a long time. And by the way, Clarkson not involved in the dispute over the Vegas Golden Knights name, even though they're actually named the Golden Knights. That's actually Army that's involved in that dispute. Just in case anyone was wondering, but. It, the Clarkson team, it's loaded with sophomores, and they are right there. They're going to be there for a while. Yeah, Clarkson is returning some of the glory to upstate New York, where Clarkson hasn't ever actually won a national championship. For all our discussion of the history it, of this conference, hockey. yeah, uh, they haven't won a national championship uh, on the men's hockey side. of things. They've been to a lot of Frozen Fours and a lot of national championships, but they've never actually pulled the trigger and won it, despite having at one point Len Kiglarski coaching them, and at another point the great Jerry York. So they've had, a, there's been a joke of, it's basically a feeding ground for uh, for eventual Boston College coaches. So whoever's coaching there right now is better prepare his resume for the retirement of Mr. York, which we don't know when that will be. But uh, that we should be expecting them to compete for a while, and they were a 500 hockey team last year. I mean, Kylie, I think, has made the biggest jump because his numbers last year, he had three shutouts, a 9-11 save percentage, and a 256 for last season for uh, uh, for goals allowed. This season, a 948 percentage, a 135 goals allowed, and six shutouts. He made the jump from very good goaltender to elite high caliber goaltender. And I don't think Clarkson, I don't think they have uh, hockey scholarships up there. That's one of the things about the ECAC as well, is there's a lot of schools that don't do athletic scholarships. I think in part because of that, it led to a season last year where they were able to start and play a whole lot of freshmen. And Kylie was one of those freshmen who, you don't see that many freshman goaltenders get the workload he got last year. And he did all right in that. But now as a sophomore, he has all that experience under his belt. And he's really coming through as one of the best goalies in college hockey. So it, you have that. You have the sophomores that are that are scoring so many goals for them, such as Rempal. And Devin Brousseau has 18 assists at this point in the season. I think that comes in part because out of necessity, they had to start a lot of freshmen, and because they don't necessarily have the scholarships the way that other schools have, they're not bringing in a whole lot of guys that are just on their way to the NHL. So these guys are going to stick around because, well, that's they weren't they didn't really expect that they were going to be prospects. They just wanted to be college students that played hockey, and they continue to be that as the ECAC really tries to uphold that um, that student-athlete standard that a lot of people have sticker, snickered at these days. Yeah, I'm happy to see that uh, they're the conference that really holds to that. I mean, there's a, there's a number of schools out west that do actually hold to that, too. Denver players really hold to that. Um, there's, there's a number of other schools that do that, but as a full conference-wide thing, ECAC – helped by the fact that the Ivy Leagues require that on their own, just being Ivy League schools. 
But it's nice to see that there's a bunch of other places that really hold to that as well. I don't think you can laugh at the idea of hockey players also really being students. There's an expectation that you are going to school if uh, if you are a hockey player at, at the D1 level. Not the same way that there is with a lot of major basketball or football programs, I think. That That's, that's fair enough. And... Then you look at the Cornell teams. We've talked a bit about Clarkson's excellent group of young players. The Cornell team is not top-heavy at all. They get their scoring from just about everywhere. Yeah, that's one of the frustrating things about about them from the opponent's position is that there's a lot of different people that you have to prepare for. And they do have some veteran players like Trevor Yates, uh, is a senior, but there's a lot of younger players. Morgan Barron, a freshman, who's put in very good minutes for them. Jeff Malott is putting in very good minutes for them. Anthony Angelo is a junior, was drafted by Pittsburgh. There's a lot of depth on the Cornell team, and they really buy into the notion of everybody gets uh, gets to be a part of the thing that they're doing up at Cornell. In a lot of ways, that might be the preferred way to build a hockey team because unlike other sports where you can leave your starting lineup out there for most of the game, in hockey, you have to cycle them on and off. And if you're a, if you're a top-line heavy team, that can come back to bite you later on when it gets to the tournament time. And that's a bit in the future, so it's hard to project with that. But I think a deep team like Cornell is going to give everyone fits because they can't just focus in on one line of scorers that are really lethal and then hope that the other lines can kind of sort themselves out. With Cornell, you don't get that uh, that luxury. Agreed, especially with some other teams in the ECAC being kind of top-heavy. I'm looking at Harvard for this one specifically with – when Ryan Donato leaves Harvard, I am hoping for their sake that other people begin to step up because Donato has been carrying the load for them offensively. So the second that he goes to uh, South Korea to play in the, in the Olympics, Harvard is going to have some things to sort out on their offensive end. Harvard has been I, – I... I don't really want to focus that much on who was the big disappointment of the season because I think that can be a little cruel in every sport. But Harvard certainly expected to be better than they have been to this point in the season. And um, you were able to sit down with Ryan Donato. Did you learn much about what might be going on at, at Harvard that they're just having a rough year? Or is it really just that the ECAC is the kind of conference where – if you slip up at all, the schools like Clarkson and Cornell will pass you by. I think that, uh, well, I had an idea of why they were struggling before I talked to Ryan Donato, but after talking with him for a bit, I he noted that there were a lot of players from Harvard's team last year who graduated. Uh, uh, Esposito and Kerfoot and uh, there's a lot of players. I think seven players who got major minutes for Harvard last season graduated. So there were a lot of holes to fill, a lot of freshmen who are coming in who got big minutes early, who were learning how to play college hockey because there is an adjustment time. And Harvard's schedule was absolutely 
brutal for the early stretch. And after their game on November 4th at home, they did not play another home game until January 5th, this past Friday, and that was a, uh, a game against RPI. They have had a brutal stretch for, for just their scheduling at large. So uh, youth combined with an unforgiving schedule will cause a lot of trouble, but Henry Boldy and Jack Bedini are the face of the new freshman class that have adjusted pretty well, and I think Harvard will be a contender late into the season. They're 7-6-2 and two overall. They just tied Union. Uh, excuse me. They just tied RPI last night, and they've got a weekend with Princeton and Quinnipiac coming in. So I think they'll be okay moving forward. But I don't think that uh, I don't think that this is a championship season for them next year. Especially if Ryan Donato stays on for another year. Next year, Harvard will be back in form and competing with Clarkson for a championship. Well, they're in good hands with Ted Donato, who has proven he's one of the up-and-coming, well, not even up-and-coming, he's one of the great coaches of college hockey at this point. He turned that Harvard program from, they had been in a bit of a downturn after 1993 when they were excellent. They had kind of gone on some hard times in the early 2000s. He took over. And ever since then, they've been shooting back up the rankings where it's it's actually disappointing to not see them in the poll this year. So he's been doing a great job. And I think if there's any chance Ryan Donato stays for another year, it's probably because that is his dad on the, on the bench there that's doing such a great job. Well, I actually asked him if he was going to end up staying or if he's thought about his future. And his answer was, I haven't thought about it. Uh, I'm going to focus on this season for right now and see where I'm at towards the end of uh, of the year, if I'm ready to make the jump, if I want to stay another year at Harvard, where the team is, et cetera, et cetera. But for right now, um, I, I put my money on Ryan Donato staying for one more season. It's the culture at Harvard that you stay for another year, and I think that he's going to look at that team and think, man, this could be fun. That this this team is so young right now that at a season of real time playing college hockey, and they could be good. Though they would have to sort out their goaltending because Merrick Madsen is a senior and won't be back next next season. So they'll have to figure out their goaltending and hope that they've got a young guy who can come up and fill the role pretty well. Is the only concern moving forward for Harvard. So getting back to the schools at the top of the ECAC. You look at the deep Cornell team and you look at the high-flying Clarkson team and it, it's hard to handicap who's going, who you would say are the favorites in that. I, you know, Cornell's going to have a little bit fresher legs because they started a little later, but at this point that's getting to matter less and less as the season goes on. Um, I would give a slight edge to Clarkson because of goaltender Jake Kiley. He's been doing so well and at the you know if you run into the hot goalie at the wrong time there's nothing you can do so I, I would give a slight edge to Clarkson but it's really anybody's guess who wins that conference yeah and Matthew Galajda I'm sorry if I'm butchering his name pronunciation but Galajda has been an outstanding goaltender on his own right a 919 save percentage for him which is not a top percentage in in the conference but it's it's nothing to slouch at either so. Um, I won't be shocked at all if if uh, it's either of them. So I I don't know who I'd pick. I'm in flip a coin mode right now between those two. I will 
Uh, Cornell is coming down to Harvard in a couple weeks, so I will see Harvard and Cornell face off. And Clarkson is in uh, is in Quinnipiac in a short period of time. So I might go down and see them, depending on what the schedule allows me to do. You mentioned that goaltending situation. Galajda's picked up the majority of starts, but it's a it's a fun combination because he's taken 12 starts and then five have come from senior Hayden Stewart. So you have a freshman and a senior kind of working together there. And while Stewart's not getting the bulk of the games, he's doing very well in his limited action. He's played five games. He has a shutout in those five games and a 956 save percentage. So he's good as well. And he might be able to help mentor the freshman goaltender in Galajda to maybe get Cornell over the top later on. And like I said, you have a team that deep and in a tournament format and in an elimination format, when they get to the conference um, tournament play, it's going to be really hard to take on a team like Cornell. I agree. I think it's going to be a great time looking at uh, the top to UCAC. I, I will pencil in Clarkson and Cornell facing off at Lake Placid for the for the conference trophy, and I will pencil both of them in for making the NCAA tournament this year. And maybe, maybe those two being the only two representatives from the ECAC this year. That could that could very much be true. The ECAC is a bit of a top-heavy conference this year. If you look at the rankings, the only other team in the conference that has a number next to their name at the moment is Colgate. At nine, seven, and four. Harvard's in the also receiving votes category, but that's it. it. There's also Union shows up in the also receiving votes category because, of course, Union College of late has just been hard to get rid of. But it's it's kind of a top-heavy conference, and I could see them only sending two teams to the to the NCAA tournament. Although, as we get closer to tournament time. It almost seems like we say deep about every single conference, but the ECAC is the one that might lack the depth. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I think that uh, you might be able to roll five teams deep with ones that could really be big-time competitors, and those are the top teams with Clarkson, Cornell, Union, Harvard, and Colgate. And I really think that Union is adjusting to life without Mike Vecchioni and Scalaropoulos in goal and Spencer Fu on the forward line as well. So uh, I don't think that they're, they're seven and three overall, but 11, 11 and one. I just think that they, I think they've got adjustments and they've got to move on into their next age. Harvard has adjusted into new talent. Colgate was expected to finish bottom of the barrel in the ECAC in a lot of the preseason and coach polls I saw. So they have been a pleasant surprise. I'm happy to see that the folks in Hamilton have a real team to root for, but I just don't think this is the year for Colgate. Well, they play Brown this weekend, and as far as the this weekend's ECAC action is concerned, Cornell takes on Yale, and Clarkson takes on Union. That Clarkson-Union series is going to be really fun to watch. Agreed. Upstate New York teams... Uh, Clarkson, well, they're always fun to watch. I expect Jake Kiley to perform incredibly well again, and I expect for Union to throw the throw everything in the kitchen sink at them. Then they then Clarkson goes on to play Rensselaer the next night on Saturday. 
Colgate's at Yale and Cornell's at Brown. So Colgate and Cornell kind of switch opponents on Saturday. Yeah, they do that where every uh, every one of these schools has their own travel partner, and those are the schools that are matched up, and that makes all the sense in the world for uh, for those teams to go to those places. The Colgate-Yale game should be fun, uh, especially I'm kind of jealous that they get to go to Ingalls Rink, which is one of the funkiest pieces of architecture that you could see. And Yale's campus in general is known for some funky architecture, but uh, – it might be the coolest rink in uh, in all of college hockey, just based on design alone. Perhaps. You look at this weekend's games. Um, the I'd say the premier matchups. I think it has to start with Ohio State and Penn State in the Big Ten, taking taking each other on. In both games at Pegula Ice Arena. Penn State's currently 13th. Ohio State's currently 6th. You know, this Penn State team, we look at them, and every time we talk about them, we say they don't have much in the way of defense. They're just a scoring, shoot-first kind of team. But they haven't gone away. It's a lot like last year, where after a certain point, I guess we just have to accept it. Penn State's good. Oh, yeah. I accepted that a little bit uh, a, a week or so ago that, you know, I I do enjoy a good shootout. And, you know, Penn State is the top scoring team in the nation at 4.03 goals per game. Second is actually the Mavericks of Mankato at 3.9. And then it's a style of contrast. It's a contrast to styles between Penn State and Ohio State. Ohio State is fourth in goals against per game at 209. There's only three teams that are lower, those being Clarkson, Cornell, and Notre Dame. So we're just moving down the list of goals against uh, for discussions here. So this should be fun. I wonder if Ohio State can keep up in a track meet, and I wonder if uh, if Penn State can play physical bruising hockey. But We'll have to wait and see, but I really think that Ohio State is more built for the postseason because it comes down to playing physical, beat-em-up, bruising style of hockey, and it comes down to can you depend on your defense and on your goaltending. And so far, from what we've seen from the Buckeyes and Sean Romeo, he's a high-caliber goaltender, and he'll give you everything he's got for uh, for the season. One thing I would say across every sport is you don't know how good a team truly is until they play off their game, until some opponent comes in and takes them out of their comfort zone and makes them play some other style as opposed to the one that they prefer. Because almost anyone can win playing the game they drew up. That happens all the time. You can see, you know, if Penn State gets to take a lot of shots, they'll probably win the game. If they get if they get to hold the puck for a while and just run with their offense, they're probably going to win. If Ohio State can slow a game down and make it physical, they can beat almost anybody. But the question for both of those teams and the question for any team is what happens when someone throws you off of that game? And that's what makes this weekend series so fascinating. Whoever can come out of that, if someone if someone managed to sweep those two games, and especially if the two games have the other team's pace of play and they manage to win one of them, 
I'm very impressed by that. That that's something I'm always looking to see in a in a team. Agreed. I mean, in part, I've kind of always been waiting for Peyton Jones to take the next step, and for them to uh, for him specifically to show more and to uh, shine as a top tier collegiate goaltender. He's good, and I've seen him have some very good games in his uh, in his short career so far, but. Uh, and Penn State was, I have to keep reminding myself, they were one game away. And even with Denver in the second period, one game away from the Frozen Four before falling to one of the best teams of the past 20 or so years that Denver had. So I really do, I have come to accept that Penn State is a good team. And the second that Peyton Jones steps up and becomes a very good goaltender, they'll be a great team. He doesn't have to be outstanding. All he has to be is very good in order for Penn State to become one of the most dangerous teams in the sport. Another big matchup, and this is another further West Conference. St. Cloud State taking on Western Michigan. St. Cloud State, like we mentioned, has fallen to two in the rankings, but they're still number two, and they're still fantastic. Western Michigan 12th right now. They were great last season. They're good this season. This is going to be yet another. The NCHC is always going to be in one of these premier matchups, if not multiple of them. So this is the one for this week. It's number two versus number 12. Both games are going to be at Herb Brooks Arena. What a series. Agreed. Agreed. Though, I'll be honest, I... I don't know what to make out of Western Michigan outside of Wade Allison, who's been sensational with 28 points this season. And he's averaging over a point a game with, uh, with his efforts so far this year. But outside of Wade Allison and Colt Conrad, I'm uh, uh, granted. I was never the biggest Andy Murray fan when he was an NHL coach, but uh, I've never been that big a fan of, uh, of his style of play. Not to mention also, while Ben Blacker is a very good goaltender, I I think this is St. Cloud's series to carry, especially with how brutal and how miserable they make it at Herb Brooks. So it's a good series. It's a good it should be a good weekend, but I really think St. Cloud is gonna sweep it. It would be quite a statement series for St. Cloud as well. Coming off that split with Minnesota, they're going to be at home for both of these games, and that could very much energize the team. That's When a team doesn't have many losses, they tend to come back from losses extremely strong. That doesn't bode well for Western Michigan. Agreed. Especially, I think that they will have some uh, – I think St. Cloud will have some – opportunities to experiment with their defensive performance, especially with one of their major defensemen leaving to go take part in uh, in the Olympics. So I just think that you're going to see them have a big-time uh, opportunity to adjust their players without Will Borken being in the lineup. Well, excuse me, he'll be in the lineup for this, for this weekend of games. But they're going to have to start experimenting with other things they can do without Will Borg being there for a big stretch with the Olympics. And speaking of the Olympics, just today, Team Canada announced their roster for the for the Olympic Games this year in South Korea. 
So that's out there now, and that's pretty much going to if if you were worried about a player for your favorite team possibly being taken by Team Canada, this is this is it. They they have the the goaltenders out there. They have the players out there. So so now you can look that up. Team Canada has named their team. I'm taking a look for it right now. I don't see anybody who uh, is, while I'm scrolling down, I don't see anybody who is currently an NCAA player. There is no captain named uh, for this team yet. So uh, here we go. Uh, this is the actual list of the list of roster players. There's, there isn't anybody here who is a current uh, current college player, which I think makes some sense. There's a lot of Canadian players who are playing in either the Swedish Hockey League and the KHL. There's a couple playing in the Swiss League, but there's nobody playing currently in the NCAA. So, um, in fact, there's a line here that one of the main Hockey Canada vice president, Scott Salmon, said during the team selection. They looked at NCAA and junior players and said, it's a man's game. Canada is going for an older, more physical, more bruising style of play, I think, than what uh, they think the NCAA is able to offer. So if you were worried about college hockey being affected by Team Canada, don't they? Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a, um, it, a bullet dodged for a few people that might have been for example, as someone who roots for Northeastern, I did not want to see Dylan Secura on that list, and suddenly he's not playing for Northeastern for for a very important month or so of the season. So it's good news for some people, especially for college hockey, that there will be fewer interruptions due to the Olympics. And we talked a lot about Team USA last week. So for subscribers to this podcast, and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can check that out from last week. We talked a fair amount about the the players such as Jordan Greenway who have been selected to the United States team. But that'll do it for college hockey in the Olympics, and I think that's good news all around. I agree. I think that I think we're gonna get some very good times at the Olympics. I'm happy for the TUSA players, the four college guys, who will get their opportunity to shine on the big stage of the Olympics and we'll get the opportunity to take part in it. But I I also can't say I'm disappointed that uh, we're going to get more players reg- who are slated to take part in uh, uh, take part in college hockey, and there's going to be fewer interruptions for all this stuff. So everyone benefits from all this, I think. I, I would agree with that. And I think we can move on now to an ongoing topic we've been – touching on throughout the season in college hockey. Hockey East is weird. You know, we're used to Hockey East having a certain structure to it where there are one or two teams in the top 10. Usually one of those teams is in the top five, really top three, usually about this time of year from Hockey East. And you can see Hockey East teams all over the rankings. This year, it's a little different. I don't know if I would say Hockey East is in a big down year because there are still some very good teams there, but it's a deeper conference and it seems to be a conference in transition as schools like Massachusetts Amherst 
come back to where they used to be, which is right there in the hockey's fold. They had been through a down a rough stretch in the last few years, but they look like they're turning it around slowly in Amherst. And another team that we can talk about that is back in the rankings. The main Black Bears have returned. It's been a while. Oh, my friends from up in Orono are having a great, great time uh, now that Maine is Maine is really good again. Uh, I've covered the last two games that Maine has played. One, a shutout against BU in which they have a top-flight goaltender. That's one good way to jumpstart your program is to get Jeremy Swayman or any player who is a top-notch uh, goaltender in your program. Swayman has been tremendous. I don't think this is the year that the Black Bears will claim a Lou Lamarillo Trophy for best uh, best team overall or best tournament, the best tournament champion. But I think that Swayman will, during his time in RNL, lead the team back to the Garden and lead them to more glory. I noticed that during the hockey semifinals and finals last year that there's a trio of Maine fans that go every year and they always wear their jerseys. And it seems so out of place last year, seeing these three Maine fans that were right across from where the writers sit in the press box too. So you had a good look at them the whole time. And it seemed like they were almost out of place, but, but they need something to root for. If they're going to go every year, they need something to root for because those Maine, anyone who went to Maine follows that hockey team. I've never met anyone who, who went to that school who isn't a college hockey fan, who isn't at least somewhat interested in how Maine's doing at any given moment. Absolutely. They have some of the best fans in all of college sports. They have one of the best atmospheres in all all of college sports at the Alphonse Sports Arena. They're, it's a tremendous program with great history, and I'm happy to see that the Black Bears are competing and are really successful again. I maintain that Swayman is the point man for all this success, but Nolan Vesey has really uh, played very nicely. Pat, Patrick Holloway has played very well, and they have a guy, a sophomore, who they voted as their captain, named Chase Pearson. I got to speak to him after they tied Brown in a back-and-forth game in which they said, one, that uh, uh, they were happy with the offensive performance, but not overall, because they thought they could play with more desperation. They thought they could play better, and they put a lot of shots on. And even after the three-zip win over BU, they said it's a big-time win, but we've got a lot more to develop. That's a scary team to deal with, a team that comes up with a big win and is still not fully pleased with itself. And I'm sure we'll be talking about it next week, that Maine, next weekend, this weekend they're at Northeastern, and that's going to be a big matchup. Both of those teams are ranked. It's going to be a very interesting matchup in a lot of ways. But next weekend, I think that's the one that Maine fans are circling, because that's two games at Alphond Arena, both of them against the University of New Hampshire. It will yeah, be two Millie's they- last time in Alphond Arena. Yeah, they're excited to resume the border war, especially with U. Well, UNH is an up and down team that I don't really understand what what's up with them right now. But they are. But Maine is a great team again. Maine is competitive, and the Alphonse is going to be rocking. Even though the university schedule is 
off. They extended, the university extended their break one week beyond MLK Day. So not all the students are going to be back in time for the UNH series. Probably not going to matter that much. They're still going to fill it up, and they'll be respectful of Umili and his uh, and all his years competing against UMA. So I expect that they will give him a good quality round of applause because those main people know good hockey, and they know that Dick Umili provided great hockey and great competition going up against them. It should also be a, a kind of telling weekend for both of those schools because you have these – both of them are hockey schools that are almost on the rise. I, I don't know what you'd make of New Hampshire. They've been up and down this year. Maine is certainly on the rise with the season they've been having. If one of those teams could come out of that weekend strong, they could make some waves in what is a deep and a weird hockey East this year. And we'll get a little bit more into that now. But you mentioned New Hampshire's up and down season. There's Boston University, who's not getting the results that their roster would suggest that they should be getting. And but that roster's still there. The talent is still there. And that's a team that could get on a run at any moment. UMass Amherst has proven itself a tough out in Hockey East. They have three more games coming up with Maine. Nobody seems to want to play Merrimack at any time anymore. They're just they're they're a stumbling block for Hockey East teams. They're still on the schedule. Of course, those games are at Alphonse, so that takes a little bit of the sting out of it. Going going to North Andover has been tough for Hockey East teams. What do you make of this conference, Chris? It's been up and down. You have some schools that used to be powers who have been in downturns that are kind of coming back. You have right now the highest ranked team in the conference is Northeastern, which is still going to take some getting used to, even for the most optimistic Husky fan. It's a weird conference. What do you make of it? Okay, so UNH, I am very concerned about the Wildcats right now. Because their last game was against Brown, and UNH was up four to nothing going into the third period, and their defense crumbled. They gave up four unanswered goals in the third period at home against Brown and tied four to four. Let me repeat that again. They were up four nothing against a not that good. No disrespect to Brown, but they're not where they'd like to be. And UNH, talent-wise, is a better team than Brown. And UNH tied 4-4 four to four after leading 4 nothing. If I'm Dick Umili, I would be incredibly concerned about my team moving forward. And they better have a good weekend. UNH has two games this weekend. I'm covering both of them. One against BU at home and one against BC in the Heights at Chestnut Hill. I'll, I'll be at both of them. At the very least, you need to get points out of all out of both of those games. Better for UNH's perspective, they'd better win. From BU's perspective, though, they're also a team I would be a bit concerned about, but not exactly for their play. Well, more so because of something that Coach Quinn said after the three nothing main loss on Saturday night. What was that? What was what was the comment after the the Saturday night loss? So after the game, uh, somebody asked Quinn, 
what he attributes the inconsistency to. Because that, that was the third game that BU had played against Maine. First one, in the Alphonse, BU lost 5-2. Second one, they played in, in an arena at Portland. BU won 7 nothing. Third game, they lost 3 nothing. They They have the talent to compete, but they have a lot of inconsistency. So... Quinn, when asked about the reason for all the inconsistency, said, I've got a couple theories, but I'd like to keep those to myself, if you don't mind. And there was a little bit of silence. And then he added a few, I think, very telling comments. A lot going on here. A lot more than just BU hockey going on here. Yeah, that's I, that is a very interesting comment. And that's a school that under David Quinn, it's hard to make it's hard to know what to make of BU's team because Quinn is one of the best recruiters college hockey has seen in a long time. They get these NHL caliber prospects every year and they get a slew of them. They are you will see BU's name repeatedly every NHL draft under David Quinn. But that also leads to a lot of turnover. That also yeah. leads to they have a few players that are going to the Olympics. They are they are one of those teams that is always kind of in flux because of the way they recruit. And it almost I, I always seem to compare it to John Calipari as a, a the basketball coach because he does something similar and brings in guys that are kind of just on their way to the pro ranks. And it took it it's taken him a while at every one of his stops to figure out how to get everything together and to make it gel. And of course, then after it, it, in Calipari's case, we're supposed to pretend those wins didn't happen, but um, that's, that's kind of how it's, it's a very similar situation that there's not a lot of consistency on a team like that. Well, here's the thing. You you can't really do Calipari's, Style of recruiting in uh, in the college hockey game as you can with basketball because the basketball it's a fairly small unit. There's only I think 13 or 14 players who suit up every single night. Hockey needs a lot more people. I think there's 21 or 23 players who suit up uh, every single night. So. Uh, you can't really just rely on only recruiting the top talent because, uh, let's face it, not every single person is going to rise up to the top. Quinn, for all his ability to recruit these players who are here for a short time and can succeed, Quinn is a BU lifer. He loves everything about the Boston, about Boston University, about the school, about the program. He's a lifer. He's a terrier through and through. And I wonder if there are players on this team who have not really kept their focus on while they're at BU competing for BU and just trying to make the next jump. I really do wonder if uh, if all the players have their focus. There are some who absolutely do. Bobo Carpenter and Jordan Greenway buy into BU. They've been here for a while. They absolutely buy in, and both of those guys, I think, can play at the next level. Uh, Brady Tuchuk of this current freshman class, he has bought in thoroughly. Dante Fabro, I think he has bought in. But there's a number of other guys here who I'm not sure that they fully have. So 
I just wonder if the focus simply isn't there for this edition of the Terriers. They have a tough schedule ahead, not necessarily because they play a lot of ranked teams because they don't. They're only guaranteed to play two more in they're at Providence this week or they're at home against Providence on Saturday. And then the first round of the Beanpot, yeah, they're going to take on Harvard, who's also not ranked. They only have the one ranked game on their schedule. They'll probably play one in the second round of the Beanpot because both of the teams in Northeastern and BC, they will play in the first round are ranked. So whoever loses that game or whoever wins that game will go on to play a BU team. So that's, that's going to be another ranked game for them. But that's about it. The problem with their schedule isn't the difficulty, but the amount of travel. They have five home games left this year. Yeah, and two of those road games are at Arizona State. They got to hop on. Uh, they got to hop on a plane. It, it's the two weekends before. Uh, well, also, so they've got two games this weekend. Friday night they're at UNH, and then Saturday they're at home. A five o'clock puck drop, which is a weird time to start, but five o'clock against Providence. Then uh, they get a home and home with Merrimack. That oh so lovely stumbling block, which includes a trip up to North Andover. And remember your point about how a lot of hockey teams really don't like playing up at Merrimack? Well, BU is the poster of not enjoying Merrimack at all. They have been quite bad playing at, at uh, Lawler Rink uh, in, in Quinn's time being there. Then they're on the road to Arizona State, then they're against UMass on, on a Friday night in Amherst. And then immediately after those three games, they're playing the Beanpot against Harvard. And Harvard is no slash of a team. And Donato is still going to be playing for, uh, for Harvard in that game. So they're flying across the country, coming back, playing a good UMass team, and then playing Harvard. That's a lot of travel. And then they're at home against that same UMass team in that weird in-between-the-beanpot games game that all four of those teams have to play on a Friday night. That That's that's always a chance for one of those four teams to trip up. It seems like it happens every year because they're so focused on Monday night that by Friday night someone can come in and get them. And that's going to be a tough test. It, it's really hard to see a route for BU except for their talent and their talent is still there but it would take it would take a movie style turnaround for that team to to be great this year but of course any given night they're going to be a tough out because of the amount of talent they have and that's kind of that's almost the story for almost all of hockey east you have new hampshire who from time to time can be great and then from time to time can blow a four goal lead against brown um, Providence has been a bit up and down in their own right. Northeastern has its moments of looking almost unstoppable, but then if they fall into the wrong kind of game, they can be beaten. They're, they're number 10, and that's so far the, the top two teams in the conference are 10th and 11th in the rankings. And even as a homer, I don't think I'd rank Northeastern any higher than 10th right now. UMass is uh, Amherst, of course has been in their 
transition period, they're on the rise, but they're not quite where they need to be yet. And you could say the same thing of, well, Merrimack's tough, but they don't have the full resume. It's kind of all over the conference where teams are either not as good as they should be on paper or just not consistent. And then you have two teams at the top that I don't know if it's consistency or if it's it's depth on their roster. They both can struggle from night to night, too. So uh, a couple notes about all this stuff. Uh, UNH, excuse me, uh, UMass, Greg Carvel is going to turn that team into a championship unit. Not yet, though. Uh, they'll they'll show some real promise. They'll show so show some development. Carvel is doing a very good job with UMass Amherst. We should we should applaud him for his efforts for turning a team that has only been to the NCAA tournament one time to Jonathan Quick in 2007. And that, and aside from that, not a ton else, but. He's going to turn Amherst into a championship hockey program. I really think that, but it's not this year. Merrimack is Amherst. While we're on it, just real quick, do you think yeah. that Norm Bazin and the rise of UMass Lowell kind of spurred spurred Amherst on to load up a little bit, and maybe pay more attention to their hockey program? Do you think it might have anything to do with chasing their satellite campus that has suddenly become the big guy? It's certainly possible. Um, I don't know how much internal campus politics, I don't know how big a role that plays, but it's certainly a possibility, and I, I'd be kind of foolish to rule anything out, so certainly possible. I know that uh, Amherst and Lowell are not exactly big fans or friends, but, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't rule anything out. Speaking of Lowell, by the way, I have, I have no idea what to make of the Riverhawks this season. I I I really don't know what to make of them, especially with Chris Hardenberg bailing them out and being a tremendous goaltender. And Tyler Wall, I think his confidence must have been shattered last year in the regional final against Notre Dame because he has not been the same goaltender ever since then. He's been un... I don't understand how he's been so poor so far this season in the opportunities that he's gotten them. Bazin is counting his blessings for having Hernberg be able to come in and fill the role incredibly well. So Lowell is at the end of the list of the puzzling teams in Hockey East. And they're another team with a road schedule that I would not wish on anybody. They are this weekend they're at Arizona State, because Arizona State, I guess, plays a lot of hockey East teams this year at home. Then they're at Vermont, which that's quite a bit of travel miles between Arizona State and Burlington. Then they have a home-and-home with BC. Then they have American International at home. Then they go to BC. They have a home-and-home with Providence later on in the season. They don't have a full home weekend for the rest of the season. They only have four home games remaining on their schedule in Lowell. I really wonder what Bazin, what magic, uh, voodoo-style magic Bazin is going to pull in order to get his team to the Hockey East Championship game for what would be a fifth consecutive season. I, I, just, I think this is the year where Lowell's run of championship magic comes to an end. And I think they're a good team, but I don't think their championship uh, mojo is going to hold up for another season. I think this is the end of... Uh, 
Lowell's run atop the Hockey East. Um, if you want me to make you feel better about your team, I really think Northeastern is a championship contender this year. And I think they're a better hockey team than BC, all things considered. They have been so far this year. I, I, it's not so much that I'm nervous or that I'm disappointed in Northeastern. I'm absolutely neither of those things. I'm, I'm thrilled with almost everything they've done in the Jim Madigan era. And this season is almost a culmination of it. I'd say almost because they did win a hockey East championship two years ago. I, I've joked before that I'm reluctant to say too much about Northeastern until the middle of February, because really, if they can get past that giant stumbling block, that giant, they can say they look past that tournament all they want, but there's nobody that talks to Jim Madigan or Jerry Keefe or any of the other coaches on Northeastern that doesn't ask them when they're going to bring a bean pot back to Northeastern. So they have to get past that tournament one way or another and they have to recover and we'll see what that team's like after that. I, you know, they might be the one team that we don't at least have to ask, what do you make of Northeastern? Because we know what Northeastern is. They're a team that's going to score a lot of goals. They have a great, great top line. They can get Dylan Secura is excellent. Adam Godet's excellent. One or both of those guys might end up getting some Hobie Baker um, talk later on in the season. We'll see how the season shapes up. They've been getting really good goaltending from Caden Primo. Ryan Ruck's better than he was last year. The blue line in general is better than they are they were last year. They can be up and down because when that's when their scorers aren't going, as any high flying team will attest, if your scorers aren't going, you're off your game and teams like that really struggle to play off their plan B. But that's a really good Northeastern team. I like a lot about them. I think Providence is also, you know what you're going to get with the team. Everyone else is such a mixed bag. And that's that's why I don't want to call Hockey East a bad conference because I don't think I'd call BC a bad team by any stretch of the imagination. They can be extremely good. And they can mm-hmm. also drop games out of nowhere. They're they're another one of those teams where you look at them, you I don't know what I can get out of BC from week to week. Honestly, I think there's only one team in Hockey East that I'm fully sold as right now being a contender, and that's Northeastern. I would go as far to say as I really think that I think Northeastern will be in the tournament this the national tournament this year, and. No, I'm not going to say that next sentence because I don't want to get your hopes up too much. But uh, I think that the Huskies will make some real noise uh, as the year goes on. But I'm not sold on BC. I think that their out-of-conference record has been terrible so far this year. And I think that they have uh, gotten by because welcome to BC where weird fluky bounces and magic happen for us at Conti Forum. I mean, like, I wish I were exaggerating, but seriously, you've you've been there. You know the weird, fluky magic that ends up happening at BC for every single run of the Jerry York year so far in in it in its twenty plus years of uh, of being a thing. So I'm not sold on BC. And Providence is a good team, like a really good team, but I just don't see the depth beyond uh, beyond Eric Foley and beyond uh, Brian Pino. I just don't really see the depth that you need in order to compete for a championship on Providence. 
I think I'd agree with that. They have they're they're a very top heavy team as those go and and they can do very well when they're when they're on their plan A, but like I said, it's it, you really see what a true test of any sports team is when they're thrown off of their ideal game in Providence. When they're off their game, they are in a lot of trouble. And that's I, I think that's almost true of every hockey East team. We mentioned the ECAC for as good as the top teams are might only send two teams to the tournament. I think the same is true of hockey. Certainly right now you look at the rankings and yeah, they look like they might only be a two team conference as well. And that would be a real surprise. I agree. Especially with how highly we all thought of BU right before the season started. And then things didn't go so well. I wonder if they got overly aggressive. And I say this with BC as well. I think both of those schools got over-aggressive with their early season scheduling and scheduled some teams that were just insane for young units that were just starting to piece themselves together. BC currently is first place in Hockey East. They don't have a senior on their roster. Say what you will about, uh, about the turnover at BU. There are program guys who have been there for the length of it, Nicholson and, uh, and Brandon Hickey, who were on the uh, the Eichel team that went to the to the national championship game. There's a lot of turnover at BC as well. That's that's very true, and they they're they don't have an out of conference win, not one. Yeah, yeah. I I made the point earlier. Their out of conference record is terrible. They are o five and two outside of conference. That's why, despite being first place in Hockey East, they're a bit further down in the pairwise than you might expect them. They're currently 18th, so they would be the second team out. They're right behind Bowling Green for, uh, for their whole conference. in that regard, by the way. Oh, yeah. So, so there's one team that's on the bubble that doesn't want to be, and it's a little early to talk about that, and the other team that's just happy to be there, and, and I know that's a strange feeling for a main you know, a fan base that expects that they should be competing for championships all the time, but you have to, you have to get back somehow. And there they are just sitting there in the pairwise. But again, you look at that and there's the automatic bid from the conference. And then there are only, there's only two teams in hockey East that are in that top 16. And keep in mind, the Atlantic is going to take one of these spots uh, from everybody because assuming that it's Canisius who ends up coming out of the Atlantic, Canisius is currently ranked 26. So that limits the number of spots even more. Assuming that it only ends up being the current top 16 teams and Canisius takes one of those spots, that means that in the current pairwise, Miami of Ohio is out. So we're looking at teams 15 up. So that means only Northeastern and Providence would end up going to the NCAA tournaments out of the Hockey East this year. Yeah, and that's, like I said, that's surprising for a conference that has had as many as, I believe one year they had six teams in the NCAAs. We're going to get, as of right now, if it were just the top 16 teams, we would have six NCHC teams, and there are only eight teams in that conference. Most of the Big Ten would make it as well. 
Yeah, uh, we have we have Notre Dame, Ohio State, Minnesota, uh, and Penn State. Did this anyone? Uh, yeah, we have we would have four teams making it out of uh, out of that conference. It's it's kind of crazy seeing the balance of power move out there. Those two would combine for ten. That's 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 so much of the tournament right there. And it, it makes everyone else seem like they're grasping at straws. And maybe that's part of it. Maybe we talk about these conferences being weak, but maybe it's just relative to these two conferences that are dominant. Oh, absolutely. It's it's insane to see uh see what we've got, but uh, I mean the WCHA is currently poised to only send one team in Minnesota State, Bowling Green, right now being the first team out of the top 16. And the Atlantic is, uh, as of right now, almost certainly only going to send one team. And I would pencil in Canisius as being that team that goes. Yeah, it's hard to imagine the Atlantic getting an at-large bid anytime soon, just the, the way their conference is. agree with that, but I would like to see Bowling Green make a push because Unless Mankato drops off a cliff anytime soon, which I don't think is going to happen, I'd love to see Bowling Green push and uh, get one of those, get themselves into uh, into the tournament with an at-large bid, just to get more of a diverse representation for uh, total conferences. And in terms of Bowling Green, they are currently. This weekend, they're going to be taking on Northern Michigan at Northern. So they're going to be up in the Barry Event Center of Marquette, Michigan for the weekend. That's the kind of game they have to win. And that's the thing with these with Bowling Green. They almost can not afford to lose to anyone besides Minnesota State. If they Agreed. That large yeah, they can't. They really can't lose to anybody, but their schedule that they've got coming up might be among the most brutal just in terms of their travel schedule because they've got this weekend against Northern Michigan, also a pretty good hockey team that, well, they, they ended up losing to Arizona State, which, by the way, we must congratulate Arizona State on winning a trophy at the Ice Vegas Invitational. Yeah, that was a great weekend for them, a great milestone for Arizona State, and I heard nothing but good things about that tournament. Everyone that went enjoyed it. They had a great time. Hopefully it will inspire somebody to spend some money and get UNLV in the game. It's it, it's great to see that, well, we've seen in the NHL, hockey in Las Vegas is working in a big way, and it's good to see the college game be such a hit there as well. Well, we'll wait and see how that uh, little lawsuit thing works itself out with uh... – you know, things going on. But let's not worry too much about that right now because Bowling Green also won a tournament of their own not that long ago. They won the Great Lakes, so they're coming out with some momentum. But they've got Northern Michigan. Then they're hosting Anchorage. Then making the trip to Lake State. And I know that uh, they've not had a lot of success lately, but uh, I wouldn't exactly want to go into uh, into uh, – Taffy Abel Arena for anything anytime soon. Then they get to host Michigan Tech, which it's an it's a hard out trying to knock out the defending WCHA champion. Then they get the absolute most absurd travel schedule of anybody in 
all of college sports. We talk about BU having a difficult time. Bowling Green has to go to Anchorage, Alaska for a Thursday and Friday series on the 15th and 16th of February. Then the very next weekend, Friday the 23rd of February and Saturday the 24th, they are in Huntsville, Alabama. So let's know something. They're starting in Bowling Green, going to Alaska, playing two hockey games out there, going back to Bowling Green to regroup, then going to Alabama, Huntsville to play two more games in which they are flying across more distance than, the, than is in the continental United States. That's insane. That that is ridiculous. That is there is no. We mentioned this last uh, when we were talking about the the WCHA's geography. There is no professional team in the Big Four that has to make as many travel miles to play an opponent as the WCHA teams do because of Alabama, Huntsville, and because of the two Alaska schools. It would be like the NFL teams are sent to London. Imagine Seattle being one of those teams and then having to, without a bye week, the next week, go play in Los Angeles. Imagine that That's the kind of travel miles that we're talking here. And it's a brutal sport. The WCHA plays an old-school beat-em-up style of hockey, so... I can't help but just feel bad for Bowling Green because if they want an at-large bid, they have to win out. They don't have to win the whole tournament, but they, I mean, if Minnesota State ends up winning the whole, winning the tournament, then, you know, whatever. But if Bowling Green wins out and puts themselves in a good enough position with a good tournament run, assuming some of these other schools fall out uh, of their performances recently, then... They could they could absolutely make a push for an at large bid, but that travel is nothing short of absurd. So I wish them the best of luck, but I wouldn't want to be in their position right now. Chris Lynch of InsideHockey.com. What can we expect from you this week? I know you mentioned the games you're going to be at this weekend, but um, what can we expect from you in terms of your writing on Inside Hockey? Well, the big thing for me is I've got a story on Ryan Donato, on his hockey development, his season, and uh, him growing up Well, uh, on his uh, hopes and expectations for both Harvard and the Olympics coming up. That should be up by the start of this weekend. And as always, how can people follow you on social media? You can follow me at my on my Twitter account at CC Lynch Wall, and you can follow me on my Instagram feed at CC Lynch sixteen, the number sixteen. All right, excellent. So this has been another episode of Puck University. Everyone enjoy the games this weekend. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. Please tell a friend who likes college hockey. There is a place to hear people talk about the game. We we try as hard as we can to get the whole country in there. And we're always happy to, to have you come on and listen to the show. So please subscribe wherever you get your podcast. I'm your host, Tim Williams. You can find me on Twitter at Tim Wright Sports. Everybody keep head up and your hits clean.
the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.